And uh, pick up your Bibles. We're going to turn now to Matthew chapter 7 as we carry on looking through the Sermon on the Mount. And Emmy's going to come and read for us from Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12, and then Colin will come to preach. Uh, the reading is from Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12, and it's found on page 971 in the Church Bibles. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. We know that your word is perfect, holy, inspired, profitable. We know that there are huge barriers in the preacher and just as big barriers in the hearers. So we pray that your spirit would overcome those and speak to us in a glorious way together tonight. For Jesus' glory and for his sake. Amen. I'm hoping you'll stay long enough for me to get my second sentence out tonight. Um, before there's a sort of charge for the door at the first um, sentence. Um, it's part of a series. The series is called The Best Sermon Ever. Uh, and all my humble predecessors who've had a section in this have started off by saying, that, of course, doesn't mean this sermon. So I'm going to say, it might be. It might be. Because God is in our midst. Uh, and it, it could be. Um, I think I know most of you, most of us here are, are believers this evening, but their sermons now have a life of their own, don't they? They, they seem to go on forever in the ether uh, and reappear in the strangest of places. But whether we're believers or, or, or not yet um, fully trusting in Christ, when the Holy Spirit works, that can be the best sermon ever. Not that it's the the best crafted or, or the most powerfully delivered or anything. Uh, I've been preaching now for over 50 years, and hand on heart, I, I can say I've preached plenty of sermons when I've come down from the pulpit and thought, do you know what, they'd have been better if I'd have stayed in bed this morning. I've never yet, and I don't actually anticipate ever doing, preached a sermon where I've come out and thought, that was a cracker. Gosh, they were fortunate to be there today. Um, <laughs> because it just isn't like that. But the texts that we deal with are life-transforming, aren't they? They, they? If the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and our minds to understand what we're looking at, that they can be the best sermon ever until the next best sermon ever. Uh, and maybe um, if a sermon is involved in how you come to know Christ, maybe that can't be bettered. Um, but there's certainly a million more to come afterwards. So uh, our text, which was just read for us, um, I, I, I want to do something before we get there. Um, in order for this text to really sort of have an impact on us, we need to consider two things. The first 
is the desperate state of our hearts. Uh, and this applies to, to everyone, to Christian and non-Christian alike. If you're like me, you're very conscious that you've tragically failed the Lord um, and remain in his kingdom by sheer grace. Let me read to you from Paul. Um, there are varying interpretations of this passage, but I'll, I'll share what, what mine is. Uh, this is Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse, beginning at verse 18. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There are two different ways of looking at this passage. Um, it, it's quite familiar in, in modern commentaries for it to, people to look at it and say, well, that can't be Paul talking about his experience while he's writing to the church at Rome. Um, surely that doesn't fit what's going on in the life of a Christian. Uh, and there are others that say, do you know what? I think that exactly fits who I am. I, I, I find a, a, a battle going on with me. There are temptations that I've been wrestling with for a long, long time, and they still present themselves to me. There are things that I do that I regret doing as the moment I've done them. Stuart Olliot says this about the, the more traditional view. He says, these acts of sin are against my real nature. It's not the real me. It's the fact that I still have the makeup of Adam that frustrates me so completely. I know what I want to be. There's no difficulty there. It's the performing of it. That is where the trouble lies. In the real me, there is complete singleness of purpose. It is just that I am completely frustrated by the striving sin in my makeup. I determine to do what pleases God, but this desire is frustrated by the evil that still lurks in me. In my heart of hearts, I'm rapturously in love with the law of God. I get tremendous pleasure just from surveying and contemplating it. Yet in the makeup that I've inherited from Adam, another law operates. And I end up by doing the very opposite of what was in my mind. There is no hope of my ceasing to be like this as long as I am in this body. It is a body of death. At last I shall be free. For this I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But for the time being, my heart is set on doing God's law, although my outward actions do not match up to this. He goes on a little later to say, when we arrive at this point in the apostle, in the epistle rather, we now have a very clear picture of what a Christian life is like. 
He's not a, a, what a Christian is like, I'm sorry. He's not ruled by sin, but nor is he free from sin. He knows nothing more of reigning sin, but nonetheless, he is agonizing by surviving sin. He's not the same as the unconverted. They're at peace with sin, but he is at war with it. They live in sin. He does not, although he sin, although sin still lives in him. He's characterized by holy desires, but frustrated by sin in his members. This is his present and continuing experience until he no longer has Adam's nature. Until then he cries, O wretched man that I am. And the more holy he becomes, the more he cries it. Does that resonate with you? Is that something that you can experience? The, the verses we're going to look at in just a moment are, are embedded, aren't they, in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's ask ourselves some questions. How are we doing with the Beatitudes? Steve has reminded us a couple of times of uh, those Beatitudes, put them up on the screen for us. How, how are you doing with all of those? Are, we, are you like salt and light to those around you? Have you conquered anger and lust yet? How are you getting on with loving your enemies and caring for the needy? How are we getting on with prayer and with fasting? Serving Christ wholly and free from worldly desires. So trusting God that you can't remember when you were last anxious. It's so far in the dim distant past. A total stranger to a censorious, judgmental spirit. Do you recognize that list? It's a paraphrase of the things we've been looking at in the Sermon on the Mount. If you, as I believe Paul is saying, and as, as Stuart Olliott is saying, if that resonates with you, if, 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 if you think, yeah, I, 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 can, I can just identify with that, that there is this battle going on within, within me, firstly, take, take encouragement, because the battle is only going on because God is at work in you. If you're at peace with sin in your life, if you're comfortable with it, if you're even justifying it and defending it, then you've got something serious to worry about. If not, then our, our passage is going to be an amazing help to you. I suspect that you, like me, can identify with that. So, what then about the non-Christian? Well, the non-Christian is in an infinitely worse position. Three things about non-Christians. They were true of you if you're a Christian. At one point, they're no longer true. Three things. One, they're blind. Or you are blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They're death. Romans 11, 8. It is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And as if that wasn't bad enough, Ephesians 2, 1, they're dead. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Dr. Steve Lawson uh, talks of an occasion when 
uh, he and, and a lot of fellow students were in a lecture together, uh, and the, the lecturer just looked at them and said, what can a dead man do? And there was just a silence as they all kind of looked a little bit quizzically at him. Uh, and then one of the students at the back said, stink? And that's about it, isn't it? So where do we go? Where do you go to tonight if, if you say, well, that, that's it, I, I, I'm blind. I can't see what you Christians are going on about. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. Well, the God of this world is blinding your eyes. And you're saying, well, I, I, I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, it's because you're spiritually deaf. And you're spiritually blind and deaf because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's a good news trailer for you. Onto the scene of human history comes one called Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and you read in Matthew 11:45. Uh, we were looking at this this recently, or at least at the uh, the equivalent passage in Mark, um, when G John the Baptist sends to Jesus and said, "Look, what, are you the one, or should we look for another one?" And, and Jesus says, "Go and tell John what you hear and see." Listen to the list: the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf here and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them jesus comes into the human condition and blind eyes suddenly can see deaf ears suddenly can hear and dead people can obey commands think about it lazarus come forth what on earth is the point of talking to a corpse well the point is that jesus is the life giver and it leads us to the, to the second thing uh, that we need to remember, and that is the God who saves. What is this, this God like, this God who saves? Have you ever wondered why Satan is so keen to rid us of the notion of a creator God? And he is, isn't he? Everything is thrown against the idea of creation. I think the answer is simply this, that such a God would fill us with such hope that it would be totally counterproductive to all of Satan's designs and desires. If it sounds difficult for God to say to a corpse, to the corpse of Lazarus, already beginning to, as the student rightly put it, stink, how much more ludicrous is it for God to say to nothing, let there be, and it was. The creation narrative says that, doesn't it? And God said, fill in the blank, and it was, fill in the blank. God said, fill in the blank, and it was, fill in the blank. Our God is a God who can speak. I, I haven't got the vocabulary, I was going to say an empty universe, but there's no universe there. Our God is a God who can speak into the vastness of nothingness and bring about order and creation. Our God is the God who says, let there be, and there is. So God can say to you tonight, if you're a, a non-Christian and you're saying, but I'm blind, God can say, see, receive your sight. 
If you're spiritually deaf, God can say to you, listen, hear the invitation. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. If you recognize that you're dead, then, then, God can say to you, as he said to Lazarus, come forth. And you can and will come forth. So the two things I think we need before we get anywhere near to our text is this understanding of, of where we are, that we are in an utterly and completely hopeless position. Uh, and then secondly, that, that we understand who God is and what he can do about it. Uh, and then we come to three present imperatives. Three present imperatives. Ask, seek, and knock. They're, they're, grammatically speaking, they're present active imperatives. Uh, and, and that really just simply means in, in English, do it, do it now, and don't ever stop doing it. Uh, and the three things that Jesus says to us is ask, seek, knock. Ask, Jesus says, and it will be given you. Ask, and it will be given you. Don Carson reminds us that true commitment perseveres. No one who puts his hand to the plow, uh, Jesus says, and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So Don Carson refers to prayer as the burning pursuit of God. The burning pursuit of God. It, it's not that God rewards us for our persistence. It, it is that if the Holy Spirit has made us to realize how desperate our condition is uh, for, for the Christian, that, that we are failing our Lord so lamentably, we, we owe him so much, uh, and our discipleship is so weak and feeble that we, we just long with all of our being to be better than we are. That's the way that love works, isn't it, in someone's life? If you're in love with somebody, then you, you want the very best for them. Um, you, you want them to know every joy, every comfort, every security in life. We owe our God so much. We, we love our God so much. We want to be better for him than we are. Uh, and we're frustrated that we're not. We, we, we find ourselves uh, sometimes getting angry with ourselves. We, 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 we kind of feel, well, why have I done that again? Why have I said that? Why have I thought that? You know, and that drives us to God, doesn't it? We keep saying, we keep coming, and we keep saying, Lord, deliver me from this body of death. That's what Paul is experiencing. And if you remember that quotation from Stuart Olliot, he ended up by saying, and the more holy we become, the more we feel it. And it's true, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I can look back uh, to when I was first converted out of a completely non-Christian background with, with, with no knowledge and understanding of, of, of things. And I was quite at home and quite comfortable with sins that now appall me. The very fact that I, I, I would even think of doing such a thing um, fills me with absolute horror. But 
I'm just so grateful to the Lord that, that he kind of revealed these things one at a time to me, because I'm sure if he'd have opened the, the curtains and shown me the whole horror of what my life was, what my hopes were, what my ambitions were, if I looked in a mirror and saw not what I saw, but what God saw, I don't know what I'd have done. I, I would certainly have despaired. Um, I, I would certainly have been so flattened that I wouldn't have known where to go and what to do. But having saved me, God, in his grace and mercy, says, okay, little by little, little by little, I'll show you what needs to change. Uh, and he's still doing it. He's still doing it. That's our God. Ask, ask. Secondly, uh, we need to understand that, that asking, in that sense, is, is a little bit, more than our sort of polite English word. Um, Matthew 5, 42. It's always useful, I think, to... It's not difficult to do. You don't need a, a kind of a degree in New Testament Greek to do it. You just need a Young's Concordance or something. Um, just, just look and see where else the same word is translated differently. Uh, and the, the word that is used here is ask... For instance, in Matthew 5.42 comes, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In Luke 23.23, But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. That there is an emotional intensity to that word ask that just isn't there in our English, is that, you know, I mean, ask to us is, isn't it? Oh, could you pass the salt, please? That, that's not what this word is saying. Um, this, this is somebody begging for their life. That this is somebody urgently demanding with loud cries. Somebody who is, is laying hold of God and won't let go until God answers. The second of the three words is seek. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And again, it's the same present active imperative. Do it now, keep on doing it, don't stop doing it. What does, what's seeking? Again, what, what kind of background has that got? Well, Matthew 2.13 when they departed, this is the, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to, now you could put the word in, seek, but the word here is search for the child to destroy him. Can you imagine in that circumstance if the, the, the guards that had been sent by Herod um, come back to the palace in, in Jerusalem, uh, and the king says to them, did you find the child? And they say, no. Well, they say, well, what did you do? And they say, well, we arrived at Bethlehem and said, excuse me, is there a child here who's been born the king of the Jews? And they said, no. So we came home. They would lose their heads instantly, wouldn't they? No, they, these, these people would have been kicking down doors. These people would have been dragging people out. They, they would be beating people, threatening people. There, there was an urgency, in their case, an evil intent. But the intensity of that searching is the point here. 
Matthew 12, 43 is another example. When an unclean spirit, says Jesus, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Something that isn't really explained in, in Scripture, but is certainly illustrated in Scripture, is that the, the demons seem to have a, an overwhelming desire, need, compulsion to be in a body even to the extent that they plead with Jesus, you remember, to, to cast them out of legion, but into, into the pigs that, that are around. And then the pigs run and jump off the cliff, and um, that's the end of them. But they, they plead, they plead. And here Jesus speaks to them as going through waterless places, seeking rest. They can find no rest. It was Augustine, wasn't it, who said, our souls are restless and they find no rest until they rest in you. And that's where we are as human beings. We find no rest until we're resting in God. And one last example, Matthew 13. One of Jesus' the kingdom of heaven is like sayings. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. Chris and I once visited some caves in Virginia, uh, and there's an interesting backstory to them because the, uh, the brothers that discovered these caves, they're apparently the second largest and most spectacular set of caves on planet Earth, uh, and they found a little entrance into these caves uh, and they went and liquidated all their possessions. They sold their house, they sold their car, they, they sold everything in order to buy the field. And then they lay quietly until they could earn some more money and, and buy another field that would do as a car park for this little field that they'd got. And, and then they waited a little bit longer. Uh, and then eventually they bought some more until they owned a whole pile of completely worthless land. And then they opened up the entrance to the caves and became multi-millionaires overnight almost. They were seeking. They were seeking fortune, but they, they diligently searched for it. Um, that there was nothing that they were not willing to do in order to obtain it. Uh, and that's the image that Jesus is putting forward for us. Ask, beg, plead, search as, as if your very life depended on it because it does. And then the third, knock. Guess what? It's another present active imperative. Well, you knew that already because I said there were three. Acts 12, verses 12 to 16. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark. Uh, there were many gathered there who were praying. This is Peter, you remember, delivered from prison. And um, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, I love this passage. A servant girl called Rhoda came to answer the door. Recognizing Peter's voice, what does she do? She doesn't open the door and let him in. She runs back into the prayer meeting and says, hey, guess what? Peter stood outside the door. And they said, shut up, girl. We're praying for Peter to be delivered from prison. You go, yeah, he, he, he's outside the door. Be quiet. Stop interrupting. You know, we're praying for Peter. She kept insisting, and they kept saying, 
It's his angel, it's a ghost, it, 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 it's, it's anything. But that's really a believing prayer meeting, isn't it? There's the answer to their prayers, banging on the door, trying to get in, and they won't let him in. But we read, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. If we keep knocking, if we keep asking and we keep seeking, who knows what we'll see, what the Holy Spirit will, will open to us. Three certain consequences. There's a blanket promise here that everyone who seeks in the way God has ordained will certainly receive. The seeker will find and the persistent knocking will result in the door being opened. Of course, it, it would be a gross misreading of the passage, wouldn't it, to see this as some blanket promise that, that whatever um, comes into our mind to, to desire. I think it's Eartha Kitt that used to sing the, the song. Uh, maybe not. I think Eartha Kitt was the one that says, if I can't take it with me when I go, I just ain't going to go. Um, she went and didn't take it with her. But there's somebody else who said, you know, Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. Please make amends. Uh, and this song goes on. Uh, and that isn't what Jesus is talking about, is it? This is set in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. This is set in the context of the, the search for blessedness, the search for the approval of God, the, the search for being the people that God wants us to be. Jesus rules out, doesn't he? Just kind of empty, artificial praying. He says in, in Matthew 6, 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. It's at this level sometimes, isn't it, that people get confused with Scripture. They say, well, there's a contradiction here. On the one hand, we're being told to ask and seek and knock and not to stop. And then we're being told, don't heap up. And you just leave out the word empty. Don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. This is, this is praying by rote, isn't it? When we were in school... School assemblies were a very different thing in those days. We used to sing hymns, and somebody would read from a book called the Bible, um, and somebody would make a few comments or another, uh, and we would say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and assembly was a, a gathering of, of, you know, the whole school. Uh, and I don't know whether the staff realized it, but they would start off, Our Father, uh, and the race would begin. Could the boys on the left get to the end before the girls on the right? Uh, and we used, to, we used to go through it. And when I was first seeking God in, in a real sense, I, I didn't know what you were supposed to do, how you were supposed to do it. He'd been disturbing my life. Um, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't even know if there was a God to pray to. Uh, and I thought, well, at least I know the Lord's Prayer. And somehow, in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, I ended up in the valley of the shadow of death because I, I, I just I couldn't say it and mean it because I'd never done that in my life. All I'd done was to parrot something, and I could have kneeled down in my bedroom and gone through it at a rate of knots without thinking about it, but I couldn't pray it as a meaningful prayer 
somehow Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer had just got hopelessly mixed up in my brain. Jesus says, no, not that kind of praying, but a heartfelt desire to see these things. There's a specific group of people, aren't there, that are being addressed here. And you can't take the, the promise out of, out of context. These people are the blessed of God, and, and they hunger and thirst after more of that blessing. They're, they're salt and light in the world, but they, they realize that their light isn't shining that brightly, not as brightly as it should do, uh, and they're not having the, the preserving effect that salt is supposed to have. They've grasped that Godliness is as much a matter of motive as it is of action. They, they realize that lust leads to uh, adultery and, and anger leads to murder. They, they understand this, uh, and so they're praying at that kind of level. They love their fellow men and, and desire to manifest that loving good works. They, they pray with the priorities outlined in Scripture in places like... Um, Matthew 6, 5 to 18, I'll leave you to look it up. They're heavenly-minded people, in a sense, with eternal priorities. They're trusting the Lord for both time and eternity. Those who are more concerned with their own spiritual state than they are with scoring points over others. John Newton, in a hymn he wrote, said these words, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Well and good for the, the Christian. What about the non-Christian? Well, there's, there's only one thing to be asking for, isn't there, at this stage in your life and existence. There's only one thing to be seeking after. There's only one thing to be knocking on, uh, and that knocking is on the door of the kingdom of God. So, blind and deaf and dead, as the non-Christian is, what are they going to do? Well, there's a command from God, isn't there? Uh, Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, What's the point of the gospel saying that? What's the point of the apostle Paul saying that to people who are blind, deaf, and dead? Well, whatever the point is, it works, doesn't it? Because we read in Acts 4.4, but many of those who'd heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Just, just think about When Lazarus is raised from the dead, there's one physical resurrection on the day of Pentecost and the days that followed it, there are thousands of dead people, spiritually speaking, coming to life again. So, receiving, finding, and opening. And then he ends with one telling illustration. It all sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? We as Christians can, can actually progress in, in, in that spiritual longing. We can, we can become more and more 
those that are in love with the Word of God, those who are seeking to be obedient to the Word of God, uh, and less and less that old sinful nature controls or, or beguiles or deceives us. There is, a, there is a wonderful goal there. For the unbeliever, it's even more amazing. Jesus commands you to do what you cannot do. So you can do it because God is the God who brings something out of nothing. Cannot the God who said, let there be light, and there was light, speak to an individual soul who is dead in trespasses and sins and say, come alive? Of course he can. Can't that same God just bring spiritually dead Lazaruses out of the grave by their multitudes? But Jesus now wants to point something out to us. On more than one occasion, Jesus illustrates the truth by pointing that even in the sin-soaked world in which we expect and often find a degree of right living, uh, there, are, there are good people in a wicked world. So he argues, using kind of extreme language to some extent, but he says, if you being evil, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Uh, and his, his illustration is a simple one, isn't it? You know, human beings are sinful creatures, but how many of those sinful creatures um, would, would say to their, their you know, they're going to have a, a party for, the, for their child. It's their birthday. Uh, and, you know, they said, oh, you know, can I have a cake in the shape of I don't know what? Um, kids like all these sort of shaped cakes, don't they? You know, a football pitch or, um, if they're Welsh, a rugby pitch or, you know, whatever it is that they're, they're, they're wanting. Bob the Builder or um, Chris has made, I don't know how many of them for our grandchildren over the years. Imagine, you know, there's the party uh, and Dad comes to the moment of revelation and he lifts and what's underneath it? A brick from the garden and says, tuck into that, son. No, we, we wouldn't believe that. Even, even wicked people don't behave like that. Worse still, if the child says, you know, Dad, I'm really hungry. Is there any fish left? Bearing in mind fish and bread were the, the often the picnic, weren't they, of the day. Uh, and the father kind of digs into a bag and throws a cobra. I know you get cobras in, in, in Palestine, but, you know, whatever the equivalent snake is there, um, throws a snake at the child. You go, no. So Jesus is saying, so why, why, why do you think a good, loving, gracious God would be less good than that? If what you're asking is for a, a spiritual deliverance from sin, if what you're seeking is a deeper relationship with God, if what you're knocking on is the door of the kingdom of heaven, can you really believe that God won't answer, that you won't find, that he won't open the door? God is saying to us, that is just not the kind of God that my Father is. And he adds to it, doesn't he? He kind of elaborates a little on it. 
Consider, he says, the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? If God cares for his physical creation, how much more is he going to care for those that are created in his image? If God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? If men value sheep sufficiently to rescue them on the Sabbath day, would you really expect God to act in a, in a different way concerning his needy people? This, is, this was the argument between Jesus and the Pharisees, wasn't it? They said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he basically says, are you really asking that question? If the law of God allows you to save your sheep or your oxen, um, how much more is God going to deliver a, a soul that's been put into bondage? Man may put regulations before people, but God won't. The picture is of a father. The picture is of a, a loving parent who cares for his children. I wonder if we've been struggling with the images that have been raised in the Sermon on the Mount, because I think we've reached a point in our text today that, that Jesus is saying, look, just, just look backwards. Let me just repeat the list that we looked at a moment. In one way or another, it's, it's been here three times. How are we doing with that search for blessedness? Is there ground for us to be praying to God that we could be more salt and light in the world around us? We conquered anger and lust. Are they dead now? Or are they just lying doggo waiting to spring up and catch us out again? How are we getting on with loving our enemies or are our tongues sharp and vicious? Um, do we have a, a presence on social media that really doesn't enhance our Christian witness? How are we getting on seeking God in prayer and fasting? Are we wholeheartedly serving God or, or, or are we still trying to have the world in one hand and God in the other and, uh, and not realizing that it's just going to pull us apart in the end. Are we trusting God so much that you can't even remember the last time you were anxious? Don't think I'm getting at you. I'm not. They say every finger you point at somebody else, there's, there's at least three more pointing back at you. And uh, I know where I sit in this. Uh, I know how much I need to, to listen to the command of God in the light of the promise of God. How much I need to ask him, to seek him, to knock, encouraged by the absolute certainty that he will answer I will find and he will open to me all the blessing that he's had stored for me all my life. I'm going to chicken out of the last verse. I think there's enough there. Um, let's just pray together. Our great and gracious God, we, we thank you that in an amazing way, you both challenge us and comfort us at the same time. You make us realize how 
helpless we are uh, and yet how we have an absolute and utter sufficiency to be found in you lord help us to take our eyes off ourselves fix them firmly on our god so that while yeah we do cry out wretched man that i am we also cry thanks be to god for jesus our loving wonderful savior who taught us that you are our wonderful loving father amen